Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to episode 159 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Um, if you, if things sound a little bit different today, it's because summer has finally, finally, finally arrived in my hometown of Toronto, and I've decided to move the show outside today. Uh, you may occasionally hear uh, a dump truck passing by or a rather boisterous football match happening just off my balcony, but, um, you know, it's, it's such a dreary place, Toronto, for much of the years. I had to get outside. And um, that brings me to, uh, to my guest for today, actually. And, and this show... Uh, this show that happens at the beginning of June every year is my birthday show, and as tends to happen, I kind of get reflective on my birthday, and I think about how much the movie blogging community has changed over the years. Um, I, I don't see quite as many starting up as I used to when I started mine. Uh, it, it's, you know, I, I find fewer and fewer new ones, and it kind of feels like the conversation has moved a little bit. It feels like it's moved to Twitter and it's moved to things like Snapchat and Facebook and even Instagram. Um, but every now and then I do come across a, uh, a good old fashioned uh, website blog with, with writing and thoughtful prose and considered opinions. And uh, today's guest is one of those uh, types of people who puts her thoughts together in longer form and gives me a little bit of hope for the old-fashioned, uh, old-fashioned um, blogging. So um, it, it gives me great pride to have her on uh, this show because, uh, you know, I, I feel a kinship with her, even though we've never met because there's an entire ocean between us. We are across a wire to Manchester, England, talking to the talent behind Almost Ginger, a site you can find at almostginger.com. Rebecca Sharp is on the show. How are you, Miss Sharp? I'm very well, thank you. Very uh, pumped up after that little intro, definitely. But, uh, I, I, yeah, I, tr- I tried to get it just so, you know, and, and, <laughs> and I, I mean it. It's 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 strange. I'm I'm kind of a senior citizen where the internet is concerned, and I I, I go I, I don't see as many sites like yours popping up the way I used to. A few years ago, I'd find a new one every month, and now it's it's a lot harder. Yeah, I mean when I first came on the scene as it were about maybe two years ago um but i only started looking for blogs for other bloggers about a year ago and it just seemed like everyone had been doing it for for years it was very um intimidating but everyone's lovely so yeah no it's um yeah it's quite rare actually we're always happy to find new talent so welcome you are among friends for sure (laughs) thank you episode 159 is my birthday episode for this year Uh, i celebrated my name day this past week and as has been the custom in recent years, the birthday episode is spent discussing a favorite film of mine. And this year, after three or four kicks at the can, we finally get to the top dog. So today, we will be discussing my all-time favorite film, Almost Famous, in all sorts of ways and angles, except, of course, giving it a proper review. Uh, we'll be turning the record over to play the other side, but first, we need to learn more about Miss Sharp. This is Know Your Enemy. All right, Rebecca, apparently you know how some of this goes, although I haven't done a first-time guest in a little while, so I'm kind of excited. Um, what was the first film you can remember seeing in a theater? Um, well, this is, I guess, probably quite a boring one, or maybe just a, a traditional one, because um, my first film that I remember seeing in a theater was 101 Dalmatians. Um, I think I think I do, but then I would have been three at the time. It was a live-action version. Oh. And... Um, yeah, 1996 it came out, so I would have been three. But I remember—I really do remember it quite well. But I'm like, would you take a three-year-old to the cinema? I'm not sure. 
it's not sure. it's strange, right? Like I've got young nieces and nephews and and friends with kids, and I'm always they, you know, I'm always curious when they start taking them and what they mm. take them to when they start. Um, cartoons, of course, tend to be the most popular answer, and that actually it's kind of funny because that's actually where I thought you were going. I thought you were mentioning the the animated version of One Hundred and One Dalmatians. Oh God, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so so um, yeah, three is. I don't know, three's a little young. I just, I think about it more in terms of attention span. Like, do you remember if you were, if you were in it or if you, if you were uh, anxious or anything like that? No, not at all. What, in fact, what I remember most of is that the, the cinema is an, an old one that shut down now, but it was completely weathered. Like it was like a, yeah, you would think it was a storeroom or something because it was really, really badly battered. And I do remember that my mum had to take me out to the bathroom halfway through, mm-hmm. which, you know, so... My attention span might have been okay, but I was just a regular three-year-old in that sense. Um, but I think maybe it's because my sister was older and she wanted to go. But I don't know. I just feel like that might be a made-up memory because <laughs> I feel like I feel like three might be young. And my mum will listen to this and be like, "I never took you to the cinema when you were three. Um, but yeah, no, that was that was my first film. And um, you know, Glenn Close is a little intimidating in that movie. Were you frightened of Cruella Deville? I mean, this is a this is a villain that kills puppies of all things or just was she not really really um overwhelming for you as a young lass i don't think so no um i think because of just how she looked she right. i think she looked more comical than anything okay. even other disney films i'm thinking of like ursula or anything um, from the little mermaid no i think i was um i think she was she was more exciting than anything else i think nerves so. of steel on rebecca <laughs> look at that wow um conversely what's the last film you saw um, well, this one, um, I guess it's, I guess, referred to as a modern classic in a way. Um, it was American Psycho. Oh, wow. And it was the first, it's the first time I've watched it. Um, I'd never seen it before last week. Um, you, so, funny thing, actually, I hadn't seen that movie until about two years ago. Okay. Because I um, read the book when I was younger. I read the book when I was like... Uh, I want to say 19 or 20, I read the book, and I despised that book with the fire of a thousand suns. So when they made a movie of it in 2000, I remember just immediately thinking, nope, <laughs> I have no interest in this. Um, how did it How did it work out for you? Well, I guess I guess I didn't really know what I was expecting, to be honest, because I've, I had heard many people just telling me to watch it, um, and I've now... For for years I've been saying, oh yeah, I'll put that on my list whenever someone had recommended anything, but I never actually had a list, but now I actually do. So I've been getting through um, some ones that I haven't seen recently, but um, I don't know. I loved it, but it was bonkers. It was, um, but in a but bonkers in a methodic, well-structured way. Um, yeah, no, it, it was it was fascinating, and you know, just there were little bits of it that were just like fantastic all the way through that I just loved but yeah bonkers and not what I was expecting actually I think I was expecting something a bit more I don't want to say I don't the word I've got in my head is gruesome but it is pretty gruesome but I mean I was thinking I was expecting something a bit more darker I guess yeah the, 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 the gruesomeness is played for almost almost as satire in the movie right like nothing mm. in this movie really feels like it's it's dark it, it's strange because you're right on the surface it's a very dark story where you mm. have this you know corporate lackey who in his spare time likes to just you know tear people apart in, in in his own apartment often 
but at the same time it's all so absurd that it's hard to actually be repulsed by it yeah it's it's just it's just the way like it's it's teamed perfectly where he is just this i mean i guess you know he he inhabits a lot of the um the traits of being a psycho even without you know the murderous intent um but just the way he he i mean sorry for anyone who's not watched it but the way he runs down that corridor just like butt naked but with that chainsaw in his trainers it's just i just burst out laughing because i was like that is so funny it's just the moments like that where i thought and just his white teeth and oh just these little bits that you remember um that's what kind of yeah, made it for me. And did you just you just threw it on this week because it was just the next one on the list, or yeah, were you watching it for just, any particular reason? No, just, no, just just threw it on. Well, I mean, it, it does begin with the letter A, so I was kind of <laughs> <laughs> working through my list. Um, and then afterwards, I watched Apocalypse Now for the very first oh, time. You're as well, still in the A's. Because I'm on A. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, um, okay. So let, let's 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 talk about a war story here. What is one of the worst films you've ever seen? When I think of worst films, I think of the ones that just infuriate me to a level where I just need to calm down for a bit afterwards. Not ones that are bad, but no, they're okay. okay. Um, and, it, and it was 2008's Journey to the Centre of the Earth. Oh, um, man. Who was in there? Oh, uh, Brendan Fraser. Yes, Brendan Fraser, yes. Oh, my yes. God, okay. Um, of the mummy fame. Um, yeah, I, I hated it so much. I thought it was awful. Um, I thought for a, for a fantasy film, in a way, like you know, where a world is sort of created um, that is much like our own but has significant differences. It, the suspension of belief you had to have for that film was just on another level. Like, I mean, in Harry Potter, I can believe for whatever reason that there is a train platform in between two others and you could just sort of walk straight through a wall. And I can believe that Mary Poppins has an umbrella that makes her fly, but I cannot and will not ever believe that you can get phone signal at the centre of the earth. <laughs> I mean, I can believe a lot of things in films. I can forgive a lot of films for certain you know incoherent little bits but i just saw that in the cinema and went what it was just yeah and it, it, it was bits like that all the way through i was just it was just infuriating i was like how what how bad at screenwriting can you be that you just miss that out it's like oh will the audience actually believe this yeah of course they will just write it in um so yeah i just you couldn't pay me to watch that film again well, you know what the sad thing about that is, is that you're right. A lot of times it's not films that are, um, you know, objectively bad that stick with us in terms of our worst experience. It's it's films that are dumb, you know? Yeah. It, it, sometimes when a film is objectively bad, you can actually kind of grow a fondness for it when you can see the wires and you can see, you know, the, mm, the, the, exactly. the, the makeup and see the, the, the seams and the costumes and that kind of thing. Um, but when it comes to something that is um, just kind of slapdash and not like it's, it seems like just such an obvious grab for money, um, mm. that, that's that's when things get really, really uh, distasteful. So Journey to the Center of the Earth, as a for instance, like this is an adaptation of a Jules Verne novel. So mm. the, the actual story it's 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 a classic it's you know it's got so much in it that could that's still so applicable and could be so rich but when you do it so cheaply as they did with the brendan fraser version and like you say add in the modern element of being able to use a cell phone yeah sorry that was not in jules Verne's story in 1864 (laughs) that was not in the text but they add it in and it just it becomes just you feel ripped off 
We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, t- we'll actually come back to that later because one of the movies we're going to talk about is a movie that on the surface seems like it's just kind of trying for money, but but actually does more things. Do you yeah. remember, did you did you happen to cough up the money and see that in a cinema or did you watch that at home? Oh, I watched it in the cinema. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah I did. Maybe that's, maybe that's why it infuriates me that much. Yeah, because um, you're invested, right? Your time, your money. Yeah, I, I, I don't even really remember why, but yeah, I went to see it. In a, in a cinema, in an actual cinema. Oh my goodness! Well, I, I, I do apologize for that. <laughs> uh, I didn't even recommend it to you, but I apologize. I, 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 on behalf of the filmmakers and whoever thought it was a good idea for you to go see that, apologize to you. Um, yeah, they now, should. Now you are one of the people participating in the Blind Spot series, so this could go any one number of ways. But mm-hmm. uh, what is a classic or essential film that you have not yet seen? Well, um. A Raging Bull is one that Ooh. I've um, really wanted to, well, thought thought I should see for ages because, I mean, I, I have actually, because I did a, like a film studies degree, part of it, I have seen, you know, a lot of the, the classic films that you're supposed to see, yeah. which is why for the Blind Spot I specifically go for um, foreign films because they've just completely been missed off my radar, but... I mean, I love Martin Scorsese, as many people do, um, and Robert De Niro, um, and it it seems on the surface like everything I would like in a film. I, I quite like sport films, and boxing films can be done very well, and I've heard it's good, but I just haven't yet seen it. Um, that's that's another all-time favorite of mine, of course, because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Scorsese, and it's an interesting movie just because it's very... Uh, it's very operatic. It's not quite as it's not as rock and roll as most of his films. Like the other day, I found myself watching Mean Streets, and okay. um, you know, like that. That's kind of more the vibe that everybody's used to with him. The more frenetic movies and the ones that are loud and and that not and and whatnot. I should say, um, Raging Bull is it's it's really big even though lo- like large portions of it take place in small new york apartments uh, in in like little bronx living spaces it's very very big and um very patient at times it's it's not quite as frenetic as a lot of his other movies like if you were to watch it back to back with wolf of wall street um you would wonder if it was by the same person just because oh, that one okay. is such the opposite in terms of how hyperactive it is. And I'd really actually, I, I you know, I, I'm going to kind of keep tabs on you until you get down to the R's because I'll really be curious <laughs> what you what you think of it. It's um, in some ways, it's actually it's kind of distasteful because it's, you know, he's Scorsese's kind of the king of taking a really terrible person and putting them at the, the center of their movies. When you think about movies like Wolf of Wall Street and Goodfellas and that kind of thing. Yeah. It doesn't really get much more distasteful than Jake LaMotta for reasons that you'll you'll see when you get there. So and oh. and and just you know on a superficial level, it's so pretty, it's <laughs> so beautiful. Well, no, that you've got me intrigued now, so I'm just gonna have to to hell with the alphabet. I'm just gonna <laughs> just go straight to <laughs> just it. Just go straight to the R's. Uh, I've got and to now, you now. now now that I've stoked it up so much, if you don't like it, I take no responsibility. <laughs> that's fine. And that's nice. fine. I'm sure if it's if it's better than Journey's Essential of the Earth, then. <laughs> That's, that's a, good enough. That's for a me. low bar. Okay. <laughs> you know, th- that's going to be my approach to movies for for the next little while. Is it better than Journey to the Center of the Earth? That's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use that as a rating system. Better or that's worse good. than. Last but not least, what is a film you wish you'd made? Well, it's interesting that you say that it's a, a pretty film because this film, um, I've chosen the film that I wished I'd made. Um, 
A Matter of Life and Death by Powell and Pressburger. And I think in North America it might be called Stairway to Heaven. Um, for, for whatever reason, it's got two different titles. Um, have you heard of this one? I have not seen it. Oh, it's um, it's such a... Well, I mean, a lot of Powell and Pressburger's films, they are very pretty films, especially when you look at the red shoes. Um, I mean, that's, that's gorgeous. And um, the Tales of Hoffman as well. Um, but no, I'll I'll give you a little bit, a quick snippet of um, what it's about. But yeah, um, it's it's one of my absolute favourite films. It's one of my mum's absolute favourite films as well. Um, and it's it's so incredibly British as well, which mm-hmm. is one of the best things about it. But um, it's uh, it's set on a well near a naval base in Britain during World War Two, and there's a pilot on a plane. Um, all of his um, co-pilots have have died. I can't remember why. Um, but he realizes his plane is going to crash or run out of fuel and his I think his plane is compromised in some way and there's no parachute and he is going to die. He does, however, um talks to um via radio to a lady from Boston who's stationed in Britain during the war and he essentially essentially falls in love with her just in this little conversation. And as the plane crashes, the angel who was sent from heaven to get him couldn't find the pilot in the storm. So the pilot miraculously survives when he shouldn't have and then um, washes up on a beach the pilot finds the woman he was talking to um, that yes she loves him and when the angel does catch up with the pilot to take him to heaven the pilot's like no well I, you know, c- circumstances have changed and I'm now in love and it's not fair that he has to die now and that is, that is it's a matter of life and death and there is like a court case all around it um, and in, in heaven this um, movie sounds fantastic. <laughs> it is a fan- it is a fantastic film, but the reason it works so well is because it's. I mean, on the one hand, the film it it takes this um fun- like fantastical storyline of there being this court and trial in heaven, and there's a waiting room, and they're like, oh, we're missing one at reception, um, and it's played with the utmost seriousness, and this is a legitimate thing. Um, but it does it with this just this English charm and humour. Like there's this one line that I'll never forget, and it's when the pilot's on trial, and uh, the the lawyer for the um, the um, crown, the crown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, his one of his questions is, "Would you die for her?" And he says, "Yes, but uh, I'd rather live." And <laughs> it's yeah, it's just it's just it's fantastic. So pretty. That's fanta- oh my god! So it, it's 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 amazing that you actually mentioned that because um, yesterday I watched my blind spot for this month, which was the life and death of Colonel Blimp. Um, oh, okay. I'm, I'm woefully ill-versed with Paul and Pressburger. Like, I've seen The Red Shoes, and I've seen mm. Black Narcissus, and I want to say that's it. Okay. I, I I think there there might be one or two more, but I, I'm so, so terribly uh, spoken when it comes to Paul and Pressburger. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things, you know, there, uh, there's all kinds of little syllabus in my head, sil- syllabi, syllabuses in my <laughs> head that I'm trying to work through, and they, they are one of them. Um, now, mm. why them though? Why why are that? Why is that? Uh, why is that the film you wish you'd made? The storyline is so bizarre, and I think it could have so badly gone wrong. But I mean, I, I guess in in a way, it's well. Actually, I wish I hadn't made it because I probably wouldn't have done as good a job. But because it is so, I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for a good love story, and it's like they really did come together against all the odds. He was going to die, and they still found a way to get together and they even had to go through a court to get together and it was just 
the, I mean, the little jokes, the little bits of humour, I mean, I think I maybe relate to them more because, um, you know, Powell and Pressburger did make the majority of their films in in England and it's, I don't believe that he could have taken place in a different in a different country in a different time because this was it was made in 1946 so obviously it's just after the second world war yeah. um but yeah it, it's it's and it's as well it is i know this is a big thing to say but it it, it is genuinely unlike any other film i've ever seen even other powell and pressburger films i wouldn't say that it shares a lot of things thematically with um the red shoes at all it's it's com- it's a completely different film but yeah i i just i just love it and if i'd have made that film I would, I'd be able to die a happy person. I would be pretty proud of myself awesome. to have made a I, film like that. I, I'm, I'm deeply thankful that you pointed me towards it because I'm, I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna make it a point to see this movie and, um, you know, it's, it's things like that that I love. That there's, there's all, there's, there's just so many to see yeah. that it's like where you start, where do you go next, and that's why I love talking with film, talking about film with people. Is that sometimes they'll point you towards something wonderful and just kind of help you make sense of your stack, you know. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And as well, I think the um, the actor who played Colonel Blimp as well, he's in A Matter of Life and Death. Oh, cool. So that'll be a little little crossover. Nice. All right. Well, there's a little bit about Rebecca, and um, you're about to get to know a whole lot more about me, because after 158 episodes, the time has finally come to dedicate an entire segment to my favorite film of all time. We're going to talk about Almost Famous right after this. Come on back. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. to look for America. Laughing on the bus. Playing games with the faces. She said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy. Almost Famous was written and directed by Cameron Crowe in the year 2000. It stars Patrick Fugit, Kate Hudson, Billy Crudup, Jason Lee, Francis McDormand, Zoe Deschanel, Jimmy Fallon, Anna Paquin, Noah Taylor, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. It is the story of William Miller, who is uh, a bit of a prodigy. His mother excels him in school and skips him some grades, and he ends up... uh, graduating from high school at the age of 15 and with all that extra time he has other pursuits on his mind while his mother wants him to be a lawyer he much prefers to explore the world of rock and roll and uh, potentially be a rock critic he gets an assignment from rolling stone magazine to cover stillwater an up-and-coming band in 1973 and he goes on the road with them they have no idea just how young he is um they know him as somewhere between a fan and a critic and don't really take him seriously but um william of course has eyes on the truth and uh wants to be a voice of earnestness in the lies and debauchery that is rock and roll ordinarily i start off these segments with a question with a with a thought out uh you know, phrase or sorry, with a thought out idea or something of that effect and ask my guest pop quiz hotshot. But when it comes to a movie like this that has been near and dear to me for 16 years now, it's kind of hard to think about where to start. So 
I thought I'd actually just start at the beginning. And Rebecca, you told me when we were going back and forth before this episode, but mm-hmm. um, tell the, our listeners, how did you first come to Almost Famous, um, when, where, how, and uh, what did you think of it when you first watched it? Um, yeah, I mean, I first watched Almost Famous um, when I was in university, so a few years ago. Um, it's one of my friend's um, favorite films and uh, she brought it over and we watched it and just as a group with us and that that was actually before this before today and the last time that i had i had seen it but it's my kind of film i I loved it it was it was just a mishmash of color and music and yeah it, it was it was just absolutely fantastic now, it's interesting that you say, like, you know, she brought it over and a bunch of you watched it together. Because the thing I think about when, I, when, you, when you said that to me is that it's a very um, it's a very wordy film. It's not, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not complicated or anything like that where if somebody's talking, you're going to miss it. But so much of the joy of this movie is in its dialogue. So, like, did you find that when you watched it a second time that you caught stuff that you missed the first time because just somebody happened to be talking or anything like that? Or was it better because you all watched it together and you just experienced the joy together? Well, it's interesting because I remember um, Philip Seymour Hoffman being in it a lot more than mm-hmm. um, what how often he is actually in it. And I, I yeah, I guess I picked up on him because he's a recognisable actor maybe and... Um, oh, I picked up on loads, loads more watching it recently than than back then. So I think I think what I did mainly catch back then was just the the music and the hair and you know <laughs> just the yeah kind of collage of different bit things going on rather than um, yeah the dialogue this time definitely it was it was almost like it was a completely different film. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I I always feel so bad about because I know that when I, I I'm no fun to watch movies with like in a group <laughs> unless it's a movie I've seen millions and millions of times because I want to hear it. Same thing as I can't really watch the Oscars in a group situation because I want to hear what's <laughs> going on. I'm I'm terrible in that way, and I know it sounds so antisocial, but if it's my first time experiencing something, I I'm I'm that guy. Um, but it's it's funny because when I was thinking today about my own first experience with this movie, um, I, of course, I'm older than you, so I got to see this in a theater when it was first released. And the strange thing about it is that it was released in 2000, which was around the time I was getting more seriously into films. By that point, I was more onto, you know, indie, artier films and foreign films. Um, and this, of course, was, was big on my radar at the time. Except that I didn't really know much about it going in. I, I, I Cameron Crowe wasn't really a big deal for me at the time. Uh, I think I don't think I'd seen even a trailer like on TV or online or, or before another movie. I just knew it's a movie about a rock critic, and um, a, a very good friend of mine wanted to see it as well. So we went the weekend that it opened. But it just it's. To looking back on it now, looking back like 16 years later, it seems like such night and day to go into a commercial film knowing next to nothing about it. Like, can you even remember the last time you went into a commercial film knowing next to nothing about it? Oh my goodness. Um, no, I really don't right? know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got to be something. Even if, like, for example, I'm um, very soon I'll be going to watch uh, Warcraft with my boyfriend, probably against my will. But, um, <laughs> Even even then, I know who's directed it. I know it's based off a game, so yeah. I I know something definitely. And, and you're not, and that's see, that's the thing. That's a film you're not even really looking all that forward to seeing. 
and you're and you know something about it. This was a film that I was really actually quite eager to watch, and I knew nothing. So it's it's really quite fascinating to me to see how much has changed um, in 16 years. Do you? Is there a moment in this movie that sticks out more than any other? Like, do you have a favorite scene? I mean, the airplane scene for me <laughs> is um, just to dive right in there. Um, is it? Yeah, because it's just so funny, and it's just so. It seems. As when I was watching it, I was was a bit like, "What? Like, how? How did this happen? I, I, like, is this necessary?" I wasn't actually, yeah, too sure about that. But it's just, yeah, it's just so. I, yeah, I don't even know the words. Um, so we should say, in the off chance somebody listening to this hasn't seen this movie, and if you do, if you haven't seen this movie, for the love of God, stop this podcast right now and watch it. <laughs> I, you know, and I, I, I fully cop to the fact that I'm saying that with full bias as it being my favorite film. But if you haven't seen this film, uh, this movie, Rebecca's talking about a scene towards the end where they're coming home from the tour. The band and the and the entourage are coming home from the tour, and they're on a plane that appears to be going down. Um, the hydraulics kick out, and they're they're flying through an electrical storm, and all of a sudden, everybody just starts absolutely cleansing their souls of every <laughs> bad thing they've ever done, and it's unbelievably surreal. As well, I guess with the the aftermath of that, because a lot of the film is all about you know what's the truth don't write that this put this in write that down whereas this is just a no holds barred you know blurting out of every little thing that you would probably never ever say again it was just this right now we know what the truth is type thing well it's the crazy thing is that it kind of comes back to something that penny lane says an awful lot in this movie when she refers to the real world Mm. and william miller at one point questions her and asks where and when does this real world occur and it's it's that kind of thing where, where you get a moment like this and and i think i think actually that does occur quite a bit in in our real lives that we act one way in one realm whether it's school or if you're an artist of some sort and you're in that scene or you know certainly what your online persona happens to be and you say to yourself well i act one way here but i act a different way in the real world and you gotta wonder, wait, where is the real world? Yeah, definitely. My favorite scene has actually changed over time for a long time. Like many people, my favorite scene was the house party that William Miller and Russell Hammond go to, this like high school teenage uh, house party where Russell is like proclaiming himself to be a golden god on the rooftop uh, while he's high on acid. Um, but lately, my favorite scene has actually become one that occurs... In the late going, and I think actually it happens just a scene or two after yours, where William picks up the phone and calls Lester Bangs. And he talks to him about how he went and made friends with the rock stars. And that's why he's now confused and doesn't know what direction to to take his his writing in. Um, There's something in that scene that I kind of hold near and dear now. And I think maybe it's because... It's the idea of a mentor talking to you. I sort of think we all wish we had a mentor like Lester Banks. Even on that first um, that radio show where he just come he does come in with a bang, pretty yeah. much. He's just spouts off this you know huge amount of knowledge about music, and he's just this incredible persona. So yeah, I mean, you'd be pretty pretty lucky to have a mentor like Lester Banks. Who, who you know, and and Lester's up late, so if if you needed help and it was two in the morning, you know you could call him. Exactly. Yeah, that's what you want from from any mentor. Yeah, definitely. Did this film take on any more meaning for you when you started to write 
critically because that was the thing I I kind of came to um, four or five years ago was when I started giving myself a go at being a film critic. I gained a whole new appreciation for this film. Did you have that kind of moment as well when you started writing about film instead of just writing about the films you love? Um, well, I guess it's difficult because I'm I'm probably never going to meet a lot of the um, people who are behind the, the films that I write yeah, about. You say but... that now. I'll, I'll remind you of that when you're, <laughs> I'm watching video interviews with you and Scorsese in five years. I would love that. That I'm would sure be more, would. Than, more than welcome to, to prove me wrong on that. Um, but so in, in that sense, it's, I would say there is a bit of, um, if, if William wasn't able to actually go and interview and write about these bands, if he was, if he himself had his own, um, own space where he could write whatever he wanted, then I think he would take it a different way. But because William's a kid, he, he can gain people's trust a lot better than just Joe Journalist going and interviewing, whether it be um, directors, um, actors, uh, musicians, anyone like that. I mean, he has a different outsider perspective purely just because he's a kid um, and they trust him. And I think and because of that, because he's a smart kid, he, he you can tell that he feels like he has got some responsibility and he is a journalist and he's... Um, but but he's gonna do he's gonna be different than all the other guys. Um, he's he is going to gain their trust, and you know, from from gaining their trust, he ends up with a much better story. I guess it's a bit more risk in that as well. But yeah. it's but from you know, well, if I by gaining their trust and but not writing a good good a better story. Um, it's yeah. I think that you're you're definitely on to something because that can be that's that's the responsibility, right? It's just because you've been brought further in. Like, you know, you you yourself may very well experience this at some point of, you know, being somebody who's talking about it who's who's talking about the work as as a younger journalist then if you were basically if you and I were to sit down with the same subject one after another, if you were to go into the room and then I was to go into the room, I guarantee you we're gonna come away with different angles on the same story we could ask the same questions and get vastly different answers or certainly vastly different um engagements from the subject of you know you as a young 20 something girl me as a late 30 something man it's it's gonna be such a a varied reaction yeah definitely and i think you're right is that you whatever reaction you get for better or for worse you have a responsibility to kind of mine it for the truth and I think that yeah that that's that's definitely something that's in this movie that I didn't necessarily pick up on when I just watched started watching it as a fan now that I watch it as somebody who writes it's Mm. it's a little bit more um it's a little bit more front and center I think the other thing that I always kind of gleaned to later was Lester always tells William to be very very um, like to his his line is to be honest and unmerciful, and I love that line. It's it's great. Um, except I have a trouble with the unmerciful part because I that that was the thing that I came to when I started writing and looking at this movie from that lens. Is there's sometimes where I want to ask myself or ask the person why what happened, how what were you trying to say? 
So, of course, along with uh, everybody that we've talked about already, we also have a very important character in this movie in Penny Lane, uh, the iconic role by Kate Hudson. Um, She is one of the quintessential manic pixie dream girls, a term that I don't really appreciate that much, but a a term that definitely applies. Um, I gotta imagine that watching this film now and watching this film um from from a younger perspective as yours that must seem like such a strange character and such a strange um approach to life to just leave everything behind and just drop yourself into a life of debauchery on the road am i am i presuming here or does that feel very strange it's so strange because you're essentially well, you're, yeah, you're giving up your life to, like, to what end, I guess? If there is no... Is there a goal to that? I'm not sure, because to just sort of, yeah, travel around with, with rock stars, it's it's like a... But it, it's not a goal, it's not an aspiration, it's just a way of life. I don't know, and it, that seems odd. That seems odd that that is... That someone could be content with that. That's the it, it yeah yeah that, that's you know when I look at it now even you know even though like don't get me wrong that was not something that I lived through in any way shape or form but it's <laughs> it's something that um, I, you know I, I I can kind of remember being a thing I don't I don't even know if that's a thing anymore like I you know are groupies still do, do groupies still exist do groupies that just follow a band around uh, is that still a thing I don't know but you see I I. I don't know if it's in the same sort of groupy sense, but I would find that um, there's a kind of been sort of an evolution from groupy more to um, maybe slightly um, like an older generation going after a band that's been sort of reformed. Sure. I would say is I, I'd say that they were more likely to tra- to travel around following their bands than okay, than yeah, yeah, ones. yeah. It is okay. in that sense, sort yeah, because they, they have the money now and they can do it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I would say that was I, yeah, that's something I'm probably seeing more and more of rather than yeah. See, young girls, and that's it's kind of funny because when I think about this movie and I think about the flaws in it, and there, you know, there are some. It's it's my favorite, but I'm not gonna sit here and say that it's a perfect film. But one of the flaws is that we're romanticizing an era of excess and debauchery and grown men hanging around with teenage girls, which I, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it happened, and it was a different time in a different era, and maybe the world was more naive, or maybe it wasn't. But it seems really strange on on the surface to think about how bands that were in their mid-twenties were hanging around with teenagers and nobody raised a hand. Yeah, that is, I mean, life of a rock star, isn't it, really? I sure. guess you're sort of, <laughs> sort of above the social norm, above the law, above many things in many different senses, I guess. But it's interesting um, when when you did um, bring up the groupie because it's kind of, because they don't call themselves groupies, do no. they? They call themselves band-aids. <laughs> so it's so it's kind of like we're saying, oh, we're not, we're not like that. We yeah. are, we're so much better than that. So it's, it's kind of, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know if it's a, a positive, um, I mean, it's good, that, it's good that they want to make a difference, but I mean, looking back, we're going to say, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, you know, at the yeah. same time, you're still doing the same thing. I think um, it would I think it would be better if they just actually admitted that they were groupies, because at least then they'd have some sort of, um, 
oh, I don't know what the word is, um, some sort of uh, self-realization of what they were actually doing. It's like, oh no, they, we're, they not, own it. we're yeah. not like them. Yeah. So <laughs> what is it then about Penny that allows us to, you know, that, that, that elevates her as a character? Because really we could be looking at her as just one more groupie, but I feel like when this movie is all said and done that we have more of an affection for Penny than, than you know, we than we rightly should. Yeah, it's it's interesting because she's she sees herself as, or I guess the guys maybe see her as a little bit more elusive, a little bit more having um, some more independence, some more um, what's the word? She's more assertive. Um, yeah, and she's well, and as well, perhaps a smidge more dignity as well. Sure. And she's just a little bit more. Um, and the way she goes around it saying she's retired yeah. so she, she she immediately um, becomes this sort of um, creature of like she's not attainable so I guess that's like another angle to trying to become that, that creepy stage is that oh well I'm retired I don't do that anymore so I guess it's kind of like she's just a bigger challenge I would say Well, she, she almost becomes a muse both for the artist and the critic Mm, yeah, definitely. Which is strange. I, it's it's crazy because I think part of it, I think, comes down to the fact that we're distracted by the cherubic glow that Kate Hudson has in this movie. That I, I you know, I feel like if you cast her as a more down to earth actor, we might have a problem believing some of her bullshit. And yeah. I think I, I think I, that's actually one of the moments that I I kind of applaud William is the the first time he really calls bullshit on Penny and stops being distracted by her beauty and and I think eventually she stops being distracted by her own bullshit maybe that's what we end up gravitating towards is everybody in this film seems to evolve over this over the course of this tour William evolves and Russell evolves and and Penny definitely evolves in the way that she seems by the time we get out of it to be done to finally be done with that life and maybe yeah. I think that's what it is, is that we're not watching Penny at her height. We're watching, as you say, after she's retired. And that's how we're able to really come away feeling okay about this girl because we see that she she's moving on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she, she has sort of... It, it's like she doesn't really even... It, well, she obviously will kind of believe her own bullshit, I guess, because um, she... She doesn't have an age. She we don't. She doesn't really have a name. She has completely, I, I would say, like lost what she's doing. And I think she obviously has some. When she did create, well, I'm assuming she created the band aid term, yeah. or someone did. Yeah, um, they, they say that she was the one who said no more sex. Okay, yeah, <laughs> just so. blowjobs, and that's all. I love that okay. line so much. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a fantastic line. But um, yeah, it's it's she's just got no like real tangible identity she's just this sort of yeah like if she is kind of a manic pixie dream girl that's exactly what she is and in her sort of journey through this film is actually finding what who she actually is and what she actually wants to do yeah um is there a moment in the other 
like one of the habits or one of the activities or even just in the fandom that seems ancient or alien to you now because you know not not to harp on a point but you're you're younger than me <laughs> and even though this is not my world at all this is like a good oh jesus this is a good like 20 years before i would have been of age to do any of this stuff um I can understand and, and kind of latch to some of it. But in just in the way they approach music and the way they talk about music, perform, anything like that, is there anything about it that you look at it and say, wait, what did they do? How did they do that? Um, well, I think just first and foremost, the actual um, act of being able to sneak in backstage in, in <laughs> any sort of way would completely not be even remotely achievable now. Yeah. Um, but... I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, what do you think? Because I, I, I don't really know. There's nothing that kind of, yeah, screams out to me that, that that's not really the case anymore. Like, I don't know. What what do you think? See, the thing that I think is, is most prevalent is just the relationship to the physical music. Like, there's a lot of records being moved about in this in this movie. There's a lot of dropping mm-hmm. of needles that happens in this movie. Um, and even just the way that Penny says, if you ever get lonely, you can just go to the record store and visit your friends. Well, yeah. not so much anymore. <laughs> you can, but it's a lot harder than it, than it was back in 1973 or back even back in 2000 when this movie came out. And that's the thing that I wonder is what is the general approach to music? Um, I, I've had long, long conversations about it with all of my all of my friends who are big music fans and you know how we talk about how the uh even just the consumption of music has gone from ownership to piracy to now not even piracy but just streaming and mm. how how a new generation of music fans is completely content with that and there's nothing wrong like i'm not here to throw stones and say kids today don't know what they're missing because they only <laughs> no it's if that's how you embrace your music that is but i just wonder if sometimes somebody looks back at how the last generation did it and say wait you did what why how and it was this hard so i maybe it's maybe it's not in there and i'm just imagining something and everything in this just seems so romantic but i always wonder if somebody who's coming to this movie for the first time sees you know, here's Penny talking about going to the record store and visiting your friends, and that sounds completely alien. Yeah, I mean, just whilst you were saying that, I was thinking, um, I mean, the whole the event that sets William on off on this path on this path um, when his sister, you know, gives him all of her records when she leaves to become um, a stewardess, and it's you know, in in sort of modern day, that would be him sitting. Uh, down at her computer and looking through her iTunes, yeah. not quite, not quite as uh, as as romantic as no. um, handing over some records. It would be, it it wouldn't be able to happen like that. It would have to be something completely different. So even just those little tiny acts of you know passing along physical music and you know him instantly falling in love with the the sleeves, the yeah. the design on the music and. Yeah. You know, when, when she's like, oh, listen to this record and light a candle and, you know, the atmosphere just, it's not, it isn't as romantic because it, you know, it's all, it's all digital. It isn't passed along. It isn't shared in, yeah. in the same way. Like, I, I, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's completely gone, but it's, and that's to say that I think the kind of people who listen to this show and the kind of people who write blogs and who actively listen to music, there will always be people who still have physical music and still have something to hand over and pass over, but it's oh, not yeah. the way that it once was. That's for darn sure. Um, yeah. 
yeah, it's it, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. Or even you know, you were saying like what sets this whole story in motion. One of the other things that sets the story in motion is William goes outside the radio station to listen to his favorite critic doing an interview. One, name me a fifteen-year-old who's listening to terrestrial radio anymore. Two, <laughs> find me a fifteen-year-old who's listening to terrestrial radio and will go to said station to see somebody do an interview anymore. I, it's it's things like that that I think are very much of its moment. And are gone. And there's, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. But I just, I wonder sometimes if they're foreign. Um, we could be here talking about this movie for a long, long time. But I guess, you know, we're both of the opinion that for its marriage of writing and music and movies, this is a really, really special film. And it's something that if people haven't seen that they probably should. But yeah, when you mentioned that it was your favorite film, that <laughs> is quite a big um, a big thing to say, especially, you know, as someone who writes about films and probably watches a fair few. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, is, is there a way of saying what, why this film? Like, what is your connection to this film above all others that just makes it your favorite? Um, well, I'll say this. I do kind of, I, I do take a long, hard look at things once a year or so and see how various movies are, are now affecting me. And to that end, um, movies movies move up. Like one of the one of the movies I talk about now in my all time favorite films is The Apartment which is from 1960, but I hadn't seen it up until like 2009, 2010. Mm. And, you know, in just a very, very short time, it really, really endeared itself to me. But at the same time, I haven't had a movie come along, new or old, that's been able to knock this out of the top slot. And for a while... That's absolutely fair well, enough, yeah. See, the, the um. funny thing is for a while that it kind of kept rolling over because for a little while I called... Uh, for, for when I was a kid, I called Top Gun my favorite movie. When I got a little bit older, I called Goodwill Hunting my favorite movie. And then Saving Private Ryan. And then this movie. And then nothing. Like, nothing's really yeah. even come close. I think the, the best way I can describe it is that when I sat down to start writing um, constantly, I had to decide what I wanted to write about. And I literally flipped a coin because I thought to myself, I'm either going to write about film or I'm going to write about music. And I just flipped a coin and came up heads so film it was but mm. the fact that you've got one thing that combines three things i love so much into one i think maybe that's that's what it was and that's what yeah. it continues to be yeah i definitely think that um it, it is a, a personal connection like i mean obviously you you know you love music and this is a film that incorporates um a lot of some fantastic fantastic music in there so i yeah i we, we, even with like some of my favourite films it incorporates other things that I'm interested in, I think that is why we can forgive our favourite films some of their flaws because they have something else yeah. um, be it a narrative a theme, a particular actor that another film just doesn't have Yeah. now we end every uh, review even though this isn't exactly a review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible that if we could we would take away and keep from this movie, Rebecca Sharp if you could keep a souvenir from Almost Famous what are you keeping? Uh, I would love to keep Doris the tour bus um, <laughs> it is probably one of the grossest um, smelliest vehicles in I would imagine um, in, in movie history but yeah, I would. I would love that thing. If they're gonna, if they're gonna swap buses for planes now, they're getting more famous. Um, then they can happily give it to me, and I'll take it. It, it, it kind of feels like it's being kept together with matchsticks and chewing gum, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if it if it wasn't too gross, it's one of those things where you just love to have like a rummage around. Like, what 
what do they keep in there? Oh what... God, yeah. Yeah, but in a yeah in an apprehensive kind of way. Yeah, but, in, um... in, the, in the interest of science, like <laughs> in the interest of science, yeah, like what what food they eat on the road, like <laughs> just it, yeah, it would just be so fun just to have a rummage around. Awesome. Um, I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go cross gender here, and I would love to have Penny Lane's coat. Um, she wears this really awesome, um, like alpaca coat that's that, that's really kind of big on her, but still fits her perfectly. And there's a scene where she kind of just it slings it next to William Miller, and it kind of announces her presence even before she's in the shot. In the extended version of this movie, there's a great scene where she's in the um, she's in the vending room with Russell Hammond, and she uses it to block out the window on the door. Uh, it's it's just one of those great. Um, style elements of a character that really gives her that really gives the character more presence. I love when something like that is obviously really thought out by the costume person, and it just suits Kate Hudson so well that I'm like, I know that you know. First of all, that's that's not going to work on me at all, but <laughs> but still, it's it's such a cool garment that I want it. It is. It's interesting you didn't say her sunglasses, though. No, no. I want the coat. You want the coat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it looks great. And she, there's times she's wearing it where she's got to be boiling, but I don't care. It, it, it's, it's an awesome coat. Um, there we go. We have talked so much about Almost Famous. Hopefully I've given people an insight into why I dig it. And if you don't like this movie, I'm really sorry that I just wasted 20-something minutes of your time. But hey, my birthday, my show, my movie. Um, come on back after this. We're going to take a quick break. and We'll be back to flip the record over and play the other side right after this. So for Rebecca's choice to go along with Almost Famous, she went back to 2003 and uh, played up the music angle. She took a film by Richard Linklater, starring Jack Black, and uh, you chose School of Rock to go along with Almost Famous. Um, it, it's it's kind of an obvious connection, but why was this one the first one that came to mind when you thought about Almost Famous? It is. It's definitely, definitely an obvious um, connection for its music, but I have to say... Um, the first thing I thought of when thinking um, of a good film to go for, um, t- to go with, um, Almost Famous, is because that I know that um, Led Zeppelin allowed some of their songs to be played um, in Almost Famous and also School of Rock, and yeah. they're quite they're quite famous for not letting anyone use their songs ever. That's right. So, um, so yeah, I, that was actually the first thing that came to my head was like, oh, they got Led Zeppelin to use songs in this film, as did School of Rock. So. Yeah, so they've got to be t- pretty special films for Led Zeppelin to let let them use their, use yeah, their music. It, you almost got to see it as like a sign of approval, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's like if, if these guys think that this is because they don't just go and ask. They they probably have to show the scene or show the script or something. I don't oh, imagine definitely. it's just a matter of money. Um, although there are bands where it's just a matter of money. Um, yeah, bands I well, like no, too. I actually, um, I believe that. Because obviously Cameron Crowe, for almost famous, he sort of derived on his own experiences being a being a teenage um, teenage um, music journalist. But I think he took a, a cut of the film to Jimmy Page and Robert Plant to ask their permission. But um, but Jack Black with School of Rock, he had quite an interesting um, sort of proposal. He in his School of Rock uniform, which is at the um, on the stage that they have the 
final music performance in School of Rock, he does like a little um, plea that he videoed and um, in front of the crowd as well, where he pleases like, we, I beg you, we need the immigrant song, like this scene needs the immigrant song. And yeah, he does like a whole video recording of it. And I think it's somewhere on YouTube and somewhere on their DVD extras. But um, yeah, so I think you've got to go to pretty pretty extreme lengths to get Led Zeppelin to give you one of their songs. I will have to look for that and include it in the show notes because I never I never knew that story before. That's a, yeah, that sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah, oh, it was wow. really good because especially because Jack Black just he just went for it. He just completely was like, we need this song. And I think. Um, I'm not sure that they played the immigrant song, but he definitely did some kind of performance. But yeah, they went all out to get that song. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. I seem to remember it being like, like you say. I know they don't play it, but I think it's in the soundtrack somewhere. There's so many songs in that out in that movie that it's it's kind of hard to remember which ones mm. are which. But I seem to remember that they got it. I'd have to I'd have to double check. This is actually one of I feel I feel terribly terribly embarrassed because it's actually one of the few times that i didn't rewatch everything in preparation <laughs> for the show but i seem to remember it being in there um you know 30 40 minutes something into this show we've been doing a lot of talk about music so l- let's kind of take a sidestep here for a second what kind of music do you listen to and and what is and and how like is or do you listen to a lot of it in the course of your day do you tend to just only put it on when you're doing something else what's what's your relationship with music um, I mean, I I have a, a, a very weird um, music taste, but I guess everyone says that. Um, I know what my favorite band is. My favorite band is the White Stripes. Okay. Um, I love Bob you Dylan. You can stay. <laughs> yeah, they are my all-time. In fact, in fact, because it's relevant, um, the only reason that the White Stripes got introduced to me is because of School of Rock. Because I I they were talking about Meg White and um, being a girl drummer, and even though she is insulted in the film, I'm like there are girl drummers me watching this film being 10 years old thinking that's awesome and then immediately going out buying the latest album and yeah i'm massive fan massive fan of bob dylan as well that that kind of ilk is kind of my jam but yeah i don't i'm not a massive um I, i am always doing something else that is my relation i don't really go to watch live music that much i do that makes me so sad because you are in one of the most important cities in oh, the history of music and I like I would I imagine that you are like years ahead of me in knowing some of these acts and seeing some of these shows that I will be just <laughs> deeply deeply envious of uh, is it's just it's it's a time and money thing or it's just that's not been your approach it's just it's just I, so many of my friends listen to like go come to Manchester and watch all these new bands that are coming from Manchester but are also just passing through um and I'm just not one of them I just haven't got into it as much I mean I could reel off the history of of Manchester's uh, music history because from one way or another I've just learned about it had it drummed into me but yeah I uh, it's bad but yeah it is it is bad but I can I know. I, I I almost want to end this show right now, but it's, it's okay because I, I know that you must get a small smile at least knowing that, you know, I, I start off every episode with the white stripes. So yes, I'm, I do. I do. I the, love that. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like mine is legend by now, but I'll, I'll just touch on it quickly. Um, I, I, I'm almost always got my headphones nearby. Uh, I listen to music. She's every single day in some way, shape or form. Um, and a lot of it comes from 
my parents and my family, none of whom are musicians, but all of whom always had music on. Uh, you know, in my growing up, the, the, the radio was on far more often than the TV in my house um, and certainly driving around in the car. Um, so music that my parents liked, like the Beach Boys and Johnny Cash and Dolly Parton, that's all deeply in my DNA somewhere. Um, as for the bands that I love, um, I am an unapologetic fan of U2. I love the Rolling Stones. Um, modern bands that I really, really uh, love because... I'm never I'm never satisfied with the amount of music I listen to. I always want to find something new. Um, so you know, I, I listen to a lot of radio shows uh, and podcasts, listening for new bands. I mean, this week I'm going to see Courtney Barnett. She's 19. She's out of uh, Australia and she's playing like a small club here in Toronto. Uh, she's got one album to her name, but um, more modern acts. I love the White Stripes and Jack White and what he's done solo. Um, Kanye West, even though he's in huge asshole is just <laughs> so gifted musically that i love him um and uh arcade fire uh representing local um and that that's that, actually kind of one of the things i like about school of rock kind of what i was saying about with my parents and my cousins is that music is often passed down you know when we see we kind of that, that's the kind of cool thing even though uh dewey is so completely out of his mind in what he's trying to do in this movie yeah. um, the cool thing though is that he's trying to pass down a love of music to a new generation. And, oh, a- absolutely right, yeah. And that's what I see in Almost Famous as well. Like when, like you mentioned it, when we see Zoe Deschanel as Anita, the older sister, hand William her batch of records, she's passing on her love to somebody else. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, it's that's, that is the parallel thing between the two of them. I mean, Lester Bangs says to William, like, you know, rock and roll music is dying. You've come at a time when it's, you know, it's like a kid and he's missed it, but you know, it still takes William on this crazy journey as a kid and he's had more experiences in those, those few weeks than he'll probably ever have in the rest of his life. And it's a similar vein with School of Rock because um, Dewey Finn, I mean, he loves he loves rock music. He loves uh, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, ACDC. But more than that, it's it's the passion of rock, the rebelliousness, but, but also the freedom it gives. And that's kind of what he's trying to teach these kids, even if they do miss a few weeks of school like William did. It, they're all the better for it. It's yeah. just a kind of like a, a lesson in, in rock and roll, the both of them. I've always loved that one great big chart he puts together on the blackboard where he's kind of mapping out the history of music. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. It's just the briefest of shots, but I actually kind of wish I could get a still frame of that shot and look over it all because it's all music that I really dig. That's for mm. sure. I know. Like, And he mentions bands like from the 90s in it as well. I don't think he gets quite up to where they were in 2003, but there's there's no. a lot of newer acts on it. One of the things I love about this film, we were talking about this earlier, is it's a film that's meant to be fluffy and light and accessible. Um, you know, this is mm. kind of something we were talking about with Journey to the Center of the Earth, where it's a movie that's really not looking to do something complicated. But at the same time, it still approaches the subject with respect and with brains. Like, how refreshing is that when you come across a movie like this? That It's not complicated, but at the same time, it's respectful. The The script is written by Mr. Schneebly. It's written by Mike White. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's directed by Linklater. Everybody kind of forgets that. Like every every time everybody's going on about like Days and Confused and Boyhood and Slacker and those kind of movies, everybody forgets Linklater was School of Rock as well. Yeah. And this wasn't just a paycheck movie. This has him written all over it. 
Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, it is so respectful, and that's that's the point. It's the fact that this is um, because I mean, Jack Black being a musician as well, he's just he clearly loves these these bands, and they've obviously had like a massive impact on him. Then they're not just he's not just uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just it's not just about and oh, and wait, and as well when he's teaching. Um, when he's teaching that, um, oh, I can't remember that, but he's the lead singer and he's got like a flying V guitar. Yeah. How to, how to like the rocks dance. Yeah. It's just, it's this like cliche, you know, this is how rockers do it kind of. It, and it could be taken in a, oh, they're being stereotypical or maybe they're making fun of it. But he's saying, no, like the way you stand, the confidence, the I don't give a about something. It's It's, so he's using something that could be seen as a, bit of a oh this you know you only need to know three chords to be a musician you only need to do this just you can look the part and people believe you're a rock star but it's not just about looking like it it's also being taught that lesson of hey rock music isn't just great music it's also teaching the kids how to be more confident how to be themselves which is what rock music brings to a lot of kids and and it's about it's about engaging with your audience right it's not about just staring at your shoes and playing something that's poetic and beautiful but visually boring and that's i think maybe that's the approach to to a film like this is yeah you're not trying to do something complicated but at the same time you need to have respect for your audience and i I think that everybody involved with this like jack black and mike white and richard linklater all believe that is just because you're doing something commercial and uncomplicated doesn't mean that you can mail it in Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's probably the reason why I've loved it so much. It's got, it's just got all these little pockets of things that I've just taken from it when, um, you know, the way he speaks to, um, I think Tamika is her name when she's got, um, like when she's self-conscious about her body and just the little things that are woven in. It's not just, oh, it's funny because, you know, these kids aren't doing class anymore. They're doing like rock school and he's not a real teacher. It's a, yeah, but look at, all that he's teaching him through rock music, which is just the whole point. It's just look how look how much they've changed for the better, really. Definitely. Well, in case people haven't seen School of Rock, uh, it makes a great companion film to um, to Almost Famous for all the usual reasons and the reasons that we've described. So uh, hopefully uh, you've got some uh, some good watching in your future if you've never seen it and thought, well, this is just some silly little Jack Black movie. It's uh, it's a little bit more than that. And and you know, I I, I kind of think Jack Black has actually kept very much in check in this movie because he can he can get off the handle quite easily um, when he's when he's not kept on a tight leash yeah Luke later keeps him on a tight leash um, but that's School of Rock and we got one more movie to talk about right after this so come on back we're gonna talk about one more film and close out the show For my choice on the other side, I went back to a classic film from 1962. It's directed by Robert Mulligan, and it is To Kill a Mockingbird, the classic story of um, a black man in uh, Southern America in the Depression era, the Dust Bowl era, uh, who is uh, accused of committing murder, and he is defended by a... um, 
a pillar in the community and named Atticus Finch, and it's much about Atticus's daughter, Scout, who comes of age over the course of this one particular summer. Now, if you've never seen Almost Famous, and again, if you haven't, I'm kind of curious how you got this far into the episode, um, it may seem a, cu- a curious connection to a film about rock and roll. Seriously, when we talk about um, School of Rock and Almost Famous together, this may seem like an outlier, but... Um, there is a great quotient of um, almost famous that owes a great debt to To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, its beginning actually is an homage to almost famous. Uh, the, the, the To Kill a Mockingbird famously starts with a drawer being opened and all these little childhood treasures like marbles and crayons spilling out and, you know, this shot going lovingly over them. Um, and the shot of Almost Famous, where it begins, starts very much the same way, but it's of backstage passes and hotel keys and that kind of thing that William Miller has presumably picked up in his adolescence. Um, so when I suggested this movie, I imagine that the connection might have seemed clear, or did you think that I was out of my mind? Oh, I thought you were out of your mind. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I was like, what? And I even told my friends, and I was like, I don't, I don't know where he's going with this. And then, and then I went up and I rewatched the film. I was like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm not completely crazy. That's good. I'm, I'm glad that for a moment, a whole bunch of Manchester uh, film lovers were like, what is this Canadian doing? Um, yeah, because so, one of my I, friends who's doing a, he's doing a PhD in screen studies, and I was like, can you see the connection? Like, is there something you know that's really deep that I'm just like completely missing? And did he's he just not like, get it? No. or she? Well, I don't, I don't think he's seen the film Almost ah. Famous, so obviously, you know, and I was like, he was like, God, no, I've, I've no idea. I was like, yeah, I have no idea either, but I'm about to find out. <laughs> I love it. Okay, that's good. I, was, I, I thought that this one was an easy layoff. Um, that is the, the big connection. Um, they, they met, you know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird plays a part early on in Almost Famous, of course, as well, because William Miller's mother, Frances McDormand, is, want, deeply wants William to be a lawyer, just like Atticus Finch, and they, they actually start off the movie taking him to see it, and there's like a conversation about it that begins the movie. Um, so yeah, so I love, I do love when new movies play off old movies. Um, you know, we were mentioning Powell and Pressburger earlier, and when I watch Colonel Blimp, there's a shot where, or there's a scene where late in the late going where one of the soldiers says he's going to see the wizard and he actually sings the wonderful things he does and and it's it's kind of cool to see a movie from 1950 something playing off a film from 1939 I, I i love that that you know movies have that little uh ecosystem to them where they can feed off of one another like that oh definitely yeah it's I, well i mean it this is the the movie world it is i just yeah i love that they all it's like they're friends or something they're just like yeah you know what I mean. Yeah, well, it's... I it's, know what I mean. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, exactly. And it's it's neat because on the one hand, it could almost seem like these films are ripping each other off, but it, it's it's never really, it's never really seen as that. It's it's homage, if anything else, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, what is that lovely quote that Salvador Dali says, where if you're afraid of imitation or something, then you'll never create anything or yeah. you'll be too scared to create anything. I mean, and that, that is that is the, the movie world, you know. You, you've got to have some kind of you know, homage every now and again. Yeah. Is, so Atticus has famously been painted as one of the great film heroes. I, I believe there, there was an, a list the, the American Film Institute did a few years ago of great heroes and great villains, and he was named actually the greatest movie hero. Is he kind of an unattainable 
um, model. Like, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's actually kind of funny because I'm sitting here and uh, a week ago, some friends of ours had a, had a baby boy and they actually named him Atticus because his father is a lawyer. But is he so noble that it's almost unattainable? God, I think, I mean, yeah, in some ways, definitely, because he just seems to, I mean, how many of us can say that we react or say the right thing every single time and always know the right thing to do? But I guess in that sense, well, to me, it's like he is he's a dad and dads are, when you're a kid and you look up to your dad, you do think that they kind of try and teach you the, the moral way, whatever, but um yeah, he does seem a bit unattainable. He is a pretty, pretty cool guy. Well, maybe that's actually, you've just touched on something, and maybe that's it, is because much of the story is told through Scout's point of view, maybe that's why he is this white knight, is that whatever faults he has, she's not seeing them. And maybe that's also why... Did you hear about the fracas that came down a year or so ago when the second book... Oh yeah, uh, no. I, I mean, I've I've not read it or anything, but yeah, no. I heard um, it created some uh, some it, anger. It, yeah, well, it it checkered what we think of Atticus Finch because it, you know it, it painted him as a little bit less noble and a little bit more of his time. Mm. But I think that that might be that might be the biggest part of it is I don't know that that second book um, to set a watchman. I don't know that it's told from Scout's point of view again. And maybe that's why Atticus is more human, is that it's not because he is this great hero, it's he is this great hero being seen through his child's eyes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, that, I, I would say that that's completely it. And that is why he, he does... Yeah, because even, you know, with superheroes or um, anyone else who has kind of a, a noble position in, in films, they, are, you, they usually do have some flaws, and that's what makes them human. But I would say it's definitely because... You know, he's seen through his daughter's eyes and, you know, she sees him as the perfect man who always knows what to do and what to say. Yeah. And it's it's kind of it's kind of apropos that this film actually connects with Almost Famous because here we have another young man meeting a lot of his heroes, be it Lester or, uh, you know, the, the guys in in um, the guys in Stillwater and starting to see them for their own flaws. Mm. It's it's. I can't remember who it was that said that they didn't want to meet their heroes. Actually, I do know who it was. It's a strange little story from that I always remember that Dominic Monaghan from Lost and uh, Lord of the Rings, he was offered an opportunity to meet Paul McCartney one day, and he said, I can't. He's like, that man is one of my heroes. He's like, I have his lyrics tattooed on my arm. I can't, you know, share a drink with him and see him as a normal person. Yeah, I mean, well, it's not even that, though, because I feel like, because I, I would say that um, Bob Dylan is one of my heroes, but I would I would never want to meet the guy, because I know that he's not going to be, I know that he's not going to be that accommodating or that nice, so I just, I'd rather just know him for his music, and yeah. that's it. Um, yeah, no, there's, I mean, there, there's definitely something in that, because it is, it's a persona you're creating, you're not creating the human that is the band members from Stillwater you're creating whatever they mean to you they're not a person they're just a you know they're they're more like a 
yeah, they're, they're more like fiction than anything else because you you play some part in creating them. So yeah, they're going to be different people. Yeah, they, you know, you don't expect them to be of this earth, you know, and so, so to find out <laughs> yeah. that they take their coffee with sugar, it's just going to throw off your whole reality. Um, yeah. It's the other thing, of course, that uh, links the two movies that I'm kind of ashamed that your PhD friend didn't think of, um, <laughs> is that they're also both coming-of-age stories. William Miller in one and Scout in the other. Um both grow up over the course of their stories but as opposed to almost famous which is the kind of classic coming of age story where somebody goes through a summer that will greatly affect them and turn them in a new direction um scout goes through something similar but it's what happens around her less what happens directly to her you know what, you know what i'm saying like mm, yeah. it's william is kind of more in the eye of the hurricane in his coming of age Whereas Scout is standing on the balcony watching the hurricane blow by. And yet, at the same time, you figure both of them are going to be dramatically changed. Yeah, no, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that is, that, that is essentially what both of them are about. Are about the changes that children, the experiences that children can have, yeah. And it's, it's weird that way, isn't it, though? That whether it's something that actually that you go through or something that you witness happen that it, both of them can change you so dramatically. Yeah, because I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to uh, think if anything has happened either in my life or in someone I know's life that it's, it's a similar thing because yes, so many, so, many, so many movies and so many stories are based on this, this one amazing summer or this one life-changing summer, but I don't know if that, well or maybe we just don't notice because no. you know it is our life yeah. but i'm not sure if we have the same kind of same kind of experiences in real life as that it does in movies but it yeah it might just be because we don't notice it but yeah. i mean i i always come back to the line from stories we tell by sarah Pauly that a story isn't a story when you're in it yeah no that that's exactly right i think that's that is exactly the case with these two yeah, but I, it's, it's one of the things I love in, um, in To Kill a Mockingbird. The moment that we finally meet Boo Radley at the end of this movie, who's played by a spectacularly young Robert Duvall. Like, when you first see him, everybody who I know always says, whoa! Because <laughs> uh, it's just, it's, he's so young in this movie, and nobody's used to seeing him this way. Um, right before just as he comes out of the shadows in the, in the end of this movie, Scout gets this look on her face and it's part fear, part recognition, part calmness. And it's right after that, that she finally says the words, Hey boo. And I feel like that expression on her face is the, the visual that goes along with growing up that moment that you realize that you're afraid, but it's okay to be afraid. Yeah. It's funny, like, the thing I always think about with a, with a story like this is, like you mentioned, it's the kind of thing that tends to be assigned. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a book, I don't, I don't know about there, but this is a book that in high school here, a lot of people have to read. Oh, yeah, I did as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and, okay, so that's the thing. Did you, when you first came upon it, when you were assigned to read it, did you really latch on to it? Or did you just kind of get through it because you had to? Oh no, I, I latched onto it. Definitely. Oh really? I, yeah, no, I thought it was a fantastic book, um, and I'd never read anything anything like it before. And because as well for me, um, as a 
as someone who lives in Manchester, yeah, really loves country music, yeah. um, which is bizarre in itself. But yeah, it was segregation at you know at that time. It was it, it was yeah a lawyer in the south. It was it, it was kind of romanticised to me because I couldn't. I've ne- I'd never been to any place like that, and obviously the time it was written as well. But the fact that it was told through like children's eyes as well was just a completely new sort of um, sort of look on. Um, on segregation and on um, how black people were treated and you know still are treated but it was it, yeah it was a book that I would say I'd been I'd been looking for because and the other class were reading of Mice and Men which I read a bit later on but um, this book yeah it was um, it was great no I loved it I loved it I feel I felt like it was a book that I'd been waiting to read yeah it's 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 funny because i actually i I, this is one that i wasn't assigned i i didn't come to this one until i was uh i think it was 30 the first time i read it i knew the story and i'd seen the film but i never actually read the book until i was an adult and i that's one thing that i've always i've i wish i had i wish i that the books i was assigned in school were books that i latched to i i reread them all later and loved them so much for that but at the time they just they weren't it's weird because music at the time was endearing itself so deeply to me but the books i was reading at the time really weren't it's it's really strange that that's how i've grown up um but it's it's a it's a great companion film to almost famous um the other one that came to mind that we would have talked about if we didn't do it on this show two years ago is the apartment by billy wilder there's a lot of moments in that that are direct lifts into almost famous um but i love that that that's my connection there between the two is i really love it when a modern film pays shorthand to a classic film and then there becomes this lineage uh between them um and there we go. That's my birthday gift to you. Three fantastic movies that you could check that I love them all. And uh, I love talking about them, obviously, as you can tell, listening to this show. Um, and that is episode 159 of the Matinee Cast. Come on back on Monday, June 20th for episode 160. Uh, not sure what film we're going to be talking about yet, so I'm open to suggestions um, <laughs> at all the usual places. Rebecca is at almostginger.com. Uh, do you have anything coming up? Yeah, so I um, every month I do um, a little a series um, called In Flight Movies, where I kind of pick a pick a country every month to um, and find films that have been uh, set in that country or involve someone travelling through that country. And um, this month it's Spain, so that's nice. quite good for people going on summer holidays, especially from the UK. Um, so yeah, that'll be that'll be up on the seventh. Very cool. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Oh, they can find me at Almost Ginger, but without the E, because someone got that before me. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes Store. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Almost Famous, on To Kill a Mockingbird, or School of Rock can be left, or uh, suggestions for the next episode can be left uh, at uh, by email, ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter, or at matinee underscore CA, or Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Miss Sharp? I mean, you just gotta watch it, really, haven't you? Yeah. That's yeah, that's, that's all you can really do now. That is all you can do. Uh, well, take care of your cough, and we'll talk to you soon. For Rebecca, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee. Lady darling, she's so lame.